And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Um, I've been praying about it for a while, and I'm going to become a missionary to Disney World. Anybody want to go? It's not as easy as what it might sound. It's, it's pretty difficult. They have a really hard time. Keep praying for them, and uh, they're doing a lot of good, good work there. We appreciate them very much. Welcome to our group therapy session this morning. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 3. We'll look at verses 1 through 20. Can you believe it? We've actually made it to chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke. We've only been at this for about uh, 10 weeks, I think, or something like that. This is our certainty in a world of doubt, receiving Christ. Let me give you a, a, uh, a quote. It's, it's actually a study that was done. A 2011 Barna study shows that nearly half of all adults in America have prayed the sinner's prayer. How many are familiar with that, that phrase when I say sinner's prayer? Okay, not everybody. So it's, it's kind of uh, something that oftentimes pastors will have you pray, pray this prayer. This means you're, you're a believer if you have prayed that prayer and believe it in your heart. And so, so in this study, 2011, Barna shows that nearly half of all adults in America have prayed the sinner's prayer and subsequently believe they are going to heaven, though many of them rarely, if ever, attend a church, read the Bible personally, or have lifestyles that differ in any significant way from those outside the church. Take a look at your sermon notes, uh, the first statement on your sermon notes. Satan, who is known as the deceiver, Revelations 12, 9, loves to keep true believers unsure of their salvation, making them ineffective. If he can keep you unsure of your salvation, guess what he's going to do? He's going to make you ineffective. You're not going to be too excited about your faith, and you're not going to be sharing it with others. Notice also, though, and those on their way to hell deluded into thinking they are on their way to heaven. So Satan, who is known as the deceiver, loves to keep true believers unsure of their salvation, making them ineffective. And those on their way to hell deluded into thinking they are on their way to heaven. Here's really what salvation is. Here's, I tried to define it in the, the shortest phrase I could, I could come up with or discover. And this is what it is. Salvation or becoming a Christian or receiving Christ is a position where you repent and believe in a moment and maintain for the rest of your life. So you, you repent and believe in a moment. Now, whether you remember that moment or not, that's not what's important. What's, what's most important is that are you continuing for the rest of your life in repentance and belief? I, the, the point is, is, it's more than a magic, some magic prayer that I prayed 10 years ago. Oftentimes I hear people, I've asked people, are you a Christian? He says, well, yeah, I, I prayed the prayer. Okay. <laughs> when? 10 years ago, but what about now? How are you living out that, that faith now? Are you living that faith out now? That, that's the point. So salvation is a position where you repent and believe in a moment and maintain for the rest of your life. John 1.12, it, it says there, the Gospel of John, he says, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, that is Jesus, 
They have been given the right to become children of God. So they received, they believed. Jesus, when he was uh, kicking off his ministry, the gospel according to Mark, Mark 1.15, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. I think both of those verses are really telling us something about how we receive Christ. And I think the key phrase there, the key words are repent and believe, repent and believe. And so that's what we're going to talk about here today. And uh, really it comes down to, do you have a said faith or do you have a real faith? Do you just claim to be a Christian or have you really truly made a commitment to Christ? What does that look like? How do you live that out? I, have, I know a lot of people that have a general belief in God, but that's different from really trusting God. Are you trusting God? So we're going to go into this in detail and really look at our own lives. And uh, that's where we're headed. Great text. We'll be reading in just a moment, Luke 3, verses 1 through 20, and we'll unpack these notes. But let's first, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. We love your presence And for this is eternal life, that we may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that this morning, through the study of of your word, that true believers, true Christians would be encouraged, sleepy Christians would wake up, nominal Christians would get saved, so that we, as your church, would become more beautiful, and hard-to-reach people would be drawn to you through our lives. We pray this in Jesus' powerful and personal name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. So let's, let's begin reading. The first two verses are kind of packed full of a lot of hard words, <laughs> uh, hard names. So let me see if I can work through this. But there is a point to this that Luke is wanting us to understand. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Albalini, got through that, <laughs> during the high priest, so he, that's, the, that's the political culture, and then he moves in verse 2 to the spiritual or the religious culture, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So this is talking about John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, that was prophesied 700 years earlier in the book of Isaiah, other, other books. So God has not spoken to his people for some 400 years, and now God begins to speak through John the Baptist. Pretty powerful stuff. And really the point of these two verses is that this is not a legend. This is history. It's fact. It's historical. And part of that, he's pointing out too, that when you study these characters that he just described, is that it was very, very corrupt culture politically and spiritually. And now John, the forerunner of the Messiah, begins his ministry, as I said, predicted in the Old Testament. And in verse 3, it gives us John's basic message. This is kind of a 
the thesis statement of what we're going to unpack here. And he says, and he went, this is John, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then we move into, Luke is telling us that now John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And he gives us uh, this metaphor of John's ministry, kind of this word picture. We're going to have to come back to it, and I'll explain what he means by this, because it helps us to understand what it means to receive Christ. So as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, so this was written some 700 years earlier, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, because this is exactly what John the Baptist is saying, and what he's doing. Every valley shall be filled Every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall, shall see the salvation of God. And now from verses 7 all the way to about verse 18, there's this, uh, it's really seen in John the Baptist. We're going to see this being fulfilled in John the Baptist's life. Uh, that metaphor illustrated in his life. And it says, he said, therefore, to the crowds. So this is John the Baptist. He said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. I was thinking about starting this morning by saying that. <laughs> and say, and welcome to Desert Breeze Community. Not a very nice, uh, friendly uh, welcome. Welcome to our church, you brood of vipers. Um, you're like, what in the world? He's picking a fight right from the get-go. You brood of vipers. We'll explain that as we walk through that. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, that doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? But notice their response. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? They're receptive. That's amazing. If they don't start preaching better at this church, we're leaving. We're not even going to give anymore. I mean, that's kind of, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking like, wow, this guy's rough. This guy's hardcore. But the crowd say, hey, what, what should we do? They're, they're, they're showing true repentance. And he's going to lead them through repentance and belief in Christ. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So they're kind of thinking, well, is, this, is this the Messiah that we've been waiting for? Notice his response. It's remarkable. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit 
and with fire. Who's he talking about there? Yeah, Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Good news? Does that sound like good news to you? Yeah, you know what? It's good news because what he's really helping us to understand, I mean, you're thinking, that's not, doesn't sound like very good news, but here, here's why it's good news. If you were diagnosed with cancer and the doctor said, hey, uh, I've got really bad news for you. You, you, you've got cancer and you've got, you've got two months. And he said that to you, but then he, and then he said, but there's a cure, it's 100%, but you need to take it. You need to take the medicine. You need to respond to it. And if you respond, you can, you'll, you'll survive. You're not just survive, you're gonna thrive after this. That would be good news, that you have a cure. By the way, we're all terminal, and we're all gonna perish. The, the Bible's very clear about that. Apart from Christ, we're terminal, and we will perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, would not perish, because that's where we're headed. The Bible's very clear about that. We're terminal, we've got cancer, but he's saying, I've got a cure. I've got a cure, it's in, in Jesus. He's come to rescue us and reconcile us to the Father. It's, a, it's quite, quite remarkable what he says and, and what we learn from this. So that's, yes, it is good news, it is good news. But notice this now, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is God's infallible, infallible inspired word to us this morning. So, hey, let's take a look at this, uh, the notes. So let me, I've got to explain to you this metaphor that he gives to us in verses four through six. Back in these days, they had no paved roads. Therefore, you had deep ruts or tracks from wagons, animals, and people traffic. And um, so when kings would journey into a town or, or a city, the roads could not bear his large entourage. So the king would send heralds and engineers ahead to prepare the way for the king. So if you wanted the king to come into your town, obviously the king's going to change things. And these deep holes in the roads need to be filled in. The boulders in the roads uh, need to be removed. Some roads need to be widened. And uh, John is not talking, though, about an earthly king. He's speaking metaphorically because all those people knew that language. But uh, he's speaking about not just an earthly king, but he's speaking about the ultimate eternal king, Jesus. And that's why John uses the language of, of valleys being filled in and mountains being taken down. He's using hyperbole in this metaphor to say, hey, there's some things that need to, that need to be changed in your life if you're gonna really receive Christ. And so this is a great illustration on how to receive Christ. And, and what he's saying, I put it in a phrase here, to receive Christ, you must receive him as a king. 
That's the metaphor. And then he begins to unpack that metaphor for us. So John the Baptist is telling us what it means to receive Christ in general. That's verses 4 through 6, Isaiah's metaphor. And then he breaks it down for us with the rest of the text in verses 7 through 18 that we read. So you, re- you prepare the highway for the king when you repent and believe. So how do you receive the king Jesus into your life. You repent and believe. So, so track with me here. You got to listen. Repent. You repent. When you repent, it brings the mountains low. When you repent, it brings the mountains low. When you believe, it brings the valleys up. That's the metaphor. So here's This is something you hear me say a lot. You should have it memorized by now. If you don't, start working on it, okay, because you need to have this memorized. Then anytime you look at the cross, you look at the gospel, the gospel is basically this, that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared to think. That brings the mountains low. But it doesn't stop there. It also says that you and I are more loved than we ever dared to dream. That brings the valleys up. See, fundamentally, what's wrong with us is that we are self-centered. We're self-absorbed. And we struggle with both pride and fear. The gospel eliminates both our pride and fear. It eliminates our pride by saying, you were so sinful, Jesus had to die for you. There was no other way. So how could we ever be condemning or commanding or condescending to anybody? Well, how could we ever be towering or feel superior to anybody? We were so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. That, uh, that, that brings the mountains, brings us off of our, our mountaintop, thinking we're better than others. But at the same time, it also tells us that we are more loved. He loved us so much. Now think about this. He loved us so much, he wanted to die for us. That brings the valleys up. How could we ever feel inferior to anyone? How could we ever cower to anyone? Because the king of the universe loves us and gave his life for us. That that eliminates the fear. And what it does is it produces within us a humble confidence. Listen, folks. Listen, gang. Listen, you need to get this. That's great psychology. That's, that's healthy psychology. You want to be a healthy, well-balanced person? See, what it does is it produces within you when you begin to really encounter Christ and you have the opinion uh, of Christ that John the Baptist has that it creates within us. It's not that we think, we think more of ourselves or we think less of ourselves. We just don't think of ourselves because we have this blessed self-forgetfulness because we're captivated by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. That's what uh, C.S. Lewis calls it where you just, you're raptured by him, and so you're not gonna tower, and you're not gonna cower to anybody. You have this humble confidence. That's a great way to live. It eliminates pride, eliminates fear. There's no more self-centeredness because your life is caught up in him, to know him and to experience him. And so let's, let's walk through this to see what this means and what this looks like. So first of all, repentance. Repentance is really, a, it's a 180. It's an about face. It's a U-turn. It's turning from sin. I am more sinful than I ever dared to believe. It, it humbles us. And here's the first thing that we need to understand. Here's a couple fill in the blanks. About time. Okay. Change the root and you'll change the fruit. Did you notice that he mentions both root and fruit, verses eight and nine? 
So as you fill in the blank there, take a look at verse 8. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then verse 9, he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit. So you got root, fruit. So here's, here's what I found in my own personal life. And, and this was really revolutionary. What I'm going to share with you was revolutionary a number of years ago. Because I was kind of stuck. I had these stuck points in my life. And I couldn't figure out, why am I not changing? If you want to change... This is how you do it. Change the root, and you'll change the fruit. So what does it mean to change the root? Changing the root is this, changing what you trust in. It's what you trust in. That's the root. Now, there's a number of thoughts here that we need to unpack as we work through this this morning. And here's the first thought. goes right along with what he said. If the serpent can't get us to question or doubt God's existence. So this is how the, our, we have an adversary and this is how he works in our lives. If he can't get us to doubt or question God's existence, he'll get us to question or doubt his goodness. Did you notice he called them brood of vipers? Yes, you do. You remember that because I talked about that. So this idea of brood of vipers, when he says that, it's fascinating. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. When I was uh, on the fire department, I worked a couple of wildland fires. If you're familiar with wildland fires, is that they actually chase out all the, all the wildlife and even critters, snakes, serpents are on the run uh, because of, that's what he's saying, who chased you out of your out of the weeds. What wrath, what, what coming wrath were you thinking of that would cause you to come out here? That's what he's talking about there. He's given us this metaphor. Now, we also know that back in Genesis chapter three, it was this serpent, this, this viper. He's calling him brood of vipers because the serpent gets in our heart many times through his lies and convinces us. He convinces us either that there isn't a God or convinces us that we can't trust God. Remember Adam and Eve? The first thing that he said to them, did God really say that? It's almost sneering. And that's what the enemy does with us. You can't trust God. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. All of our sins are rooted right there. Every every bit of our problems are right there. We doubt his goodness. So let's, let's walk through that to see what that means here. We mistrust God, so we doubt his goodness, either by being very good or by being very bad. Did you notice who he's speaking to, John the Baptist? In verse 2, he says he, John the Baptist, said to the crowds in general. But then as you kind of look through that, you begin to see who's in the crowds. You see in verses 12 and 14, he describes uh, tax collectors and soldiers. So he's got irreligious people. And then in verse 8, you see that he's got religious people because he says, don't say we have Abraham as our father. Who's he talking to there? He's talking to Jews. And he's, he's just saying, hey, okay, so you claim that Abraham's your father. It's more than a said faith. It's a real faith. That's what he's saying. It's more than a claim. It's a commitment. That's what he wants them to understand. And so, he's, so he's the, who's in this crowd? Both good people and bad people, both religious people, I, w- I don't know if I'd call them good, but, but religious people are, are, are bad, if not worse, than irreligious people. But he's actually giving us both these categories, because listen to me, all of us fall into one of those two categories, or we go between the two. And so, 
What does that look like? This is what I put in my notes. So religion, so if you go the religious route, because you're doubting his goodness, you go the religious route, this is, how it, this is what it sounds like. If I keep all the rules, God will owe me the good life I most desire. So if I keep all the rules, if I, okay, if I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, then, I, I, then hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live the good life. I, I, I deserve it. I've earned it. I've earned it. Here's the irreligious mindset. If I break or make up all the rules, I can break them or make them up however I want to, I'll find the good life I most desire. Both of those are rooted in our doubting the goodness of God. Moralism versus self-discovery. So when we come to him, we not only have to confess our sins, but we have to confess our righteousness. What? Yeah, thinking that somehow we can earn a right standing with him. That's, that's the point. And we, we doubt his goodness. We doubt the fact that, that we can have all of his favor by his grace and by his, his goodness. Now, let's take this even deeper. Oh, by the way, let me ask you this. Um, see if you know where this is best represented in the Bible through a story. Uh, in fact, we'll eventually get to it in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's a story about a dad who had two sons. Oh, I just told you, didn't I? Yeah, it's Luke chapter 15, the dad with two sons. The older was religious, the younger was irreligious, wasn't he? And they both missed the father. And they both doubted the goodness of the father. We do the same. We don't understand it's by God's grace. But, okay, now we're going to dive a little bit deeper into our heart. This was really helpful for me. We break commandments 2 through 10 to the degree, you guys familiar with the Ten Commandments? So we break commandments two through ten to the degree we break commandment one. You can read about the uh, Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, three through 17 is one of the places where you can find the Ten Commandments. So turn to the person next to you and see if they know what the first of the top ten list is, the top ten commandments, the Ten Commandments. What's the, what's the first, number one commandment? Okay, some of you, uh, you guys are looking at me with a deer caught in the headlights kind of thing. <laughs> some of you know, though. I think I, some of you might have said, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good try. <laughs> good try. Uh, but actually, that is pretty much, uh, that's kind of a summary of that, because that's actually the summary of the first uh, four of the Ten Commandments. The second one, love your neighbor as yourself, would be the next, would be a summary statement of the next six in the Ten Commandments. But, but it's, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. So think about this. All of your problems, all of your issues are due to the fact that you violate this, that one first before you do any of the others, the two through, through ten. You need an example? Yes, you do. Thanks for asking. I'm going to give you one, whether you like it or not, okay? And I've got a couple of examples here. How about let's take adultery? It says in the seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. And of course, we know Jesus even explained it further. He said, if you look at a woman and lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. And so in this, why would someone commit adultery? Which is very common these days. 
Here's what I've, I've sat down and talked with people that have, have committed adultery, and this is why they, would, they, they committed adultery. It had very little to do with the fact that they truly loved this person. It really had to do with the fact that they loved how this other person made them feel about themselves. You guys tracking with me? Makes sense? So it was pretty self, self-centered. I've never felt so good with this person. It's like, so it's all about you, huh? Exactly. And here's what's ironic about that. Can you see how that's a violation of the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me? You mean to tell me you have a God who loves you and adores you and and gave his life for you. You have all the esteem and the value you'll ever need and you're trying to find it in in a relationship? What the heck are you thinking? You violated one, so that's why you're violating, what number was that? That was number seven. Number seven. Here's another one. Uh, How about lying? Hey, we all do it. You know, just white lie, exaggerate the truth. I was in uh, the green room of a big mega church here a number of years ago with two other mega church pastors, and we were getting ready for a funeral for a police officer who had been gunned down here in the valley. You wouldn't believe what they were talking about. I was kind of shocked myself. I was thinking, man, we need to prepare because there's a lot of people out there and they need to hear the gospel. But these two guys were talking about and boasting about how big their churches were. Now, I'm not coming off, and hopefully you don't read this like I'm better than them in any way because because the conversation got around to them asking me, so how big is Desert Breeze? And... Was it wrong of me to say, it's bigger than both of your churches put together? (laughs) And I'm smarter than both of you guys, too. (laughs) Now, why would I be tempted at that moment to feel like I had to somehow make Desert Breeze bigger than what it is to somehow, you know, to feel better. Because at that moment, listen to me, at that moment, I was more concerned about what they thought about me than what God thinks about me. That's why we lie. That's why we exaggerate the truth. Because I, I would, it'd be very easy for me, believe me, I was tempted. It's like, well, but I just thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I need to get back to the first commandment here. Wait, I... I The only eyes in the universe that matter think the world of me, that I am his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And if I don't believe that, then I'm going to exaggerate the truth to feel better about myself when I'm talking to people and to try to boost myself up because I'm not living in the reality of what he says about me. Let me give you another illustration of that. So you can see how this is all root, the root The root is changing what you trust in. Change the root and you'll change the fruit. Here's another one. So here's another thing that's been really convicting for me too uh, through the years that's been really helpful. If you are inordinately anxious, anybody ever get anxious? Anybody here? Yeah, you do. And you need to ask the people around you if, you know, to to give you some feedback about that because sometimes we even hide that from ourselves. So inordinately anxious. How, How about angry? Anybody here get angry? Okay. I've seen some of you. I've seen how some of you drive. And it's ugly. Anybody get depressed? 
Yeah. So inordinately, if you are ever inordinately anxious, angry, and depressed, it's because something is more important to you than God, something you can't live without. That's called covetousness. It's the tenth in the ten list. So it's as simple as that. When you, when you see your emotional meter pegging, it's like, what the heck is more important to you than God and his glory? Listen, folks, that's good psychology. Welcome once again to our group therapy. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. Well, this, man, I need this. And, and you need it. You need to hear this regularly. We need to be recalibrated. We need our hearts back to Jesus. We need to keep running back into his arms because we all struggle with this. This is what repentance is. 180, about face, you turn, coming back to him. See, what we're doing here is that when we break to, uh, commandments ten, uh, 2 through 10, because of breaking one, it's that we're not treating him as the king of our lives. We're not ke- treating him as king. Now, so that's the root. Let's talk about the fruit. We're spending most of our time on the front end because that's where most of our problems are. We're getting down to the root. So the fruit, so the root is changing what you trust in. <clears throat> the fruit is changing your behavior. Next point on your notes. So if he is truly the king of your life, you adapt to him, not him to you. Verse 4, he says, prepare the way for the Lord. He's quoting from Isaiah, the word Lord there is Yahweh, and what he's saying, what John the Baptist is saying, that Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is, is God in the flesh. In other words, obey him in all that he says, whether you agree with him or not, because he's Lord of our lives. He's the God of our lives. Verse five, he says, every valley shall be filled, every mountain shall be made low. In other words, let him be God. And he gives us three illustrations here. Verse 11, whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. Whoever has food, do likewise. What is he saying there? He's saying that if you are walking in vital union and communion with the God of the galaxies, your selfishness will be transformed into generosity. You're not going to be a stingy person. You're going to be a generous person because God has been overwhelmingly generous towards you and you're living in the reality of his generosity. So you're going to be generous to others. By the way, this is really a generous church and I know you guys are generous because we don't even pass the plate here. That's what's crazy about it. But it's because you guys have been, you guys have encountered the living God and you have experienced his generosity in your life and therefore it flows from your life with, through this church. And so that's the first one. Here's the next one, 12 through 13. Tax collectors collect, collect no more than you are authorized to do. That was common in those days. Tax collectors would, would uh, collect over and above what the government wanted, so they'd give the government their part and they'd keep the rest. And they'd hike up the, the taxes on people. So what is he saying? If you're walking in vital union and communion with the God of the galaxies, your dishonesty will be transformed into t- integrity. And then in verse 14, soldiers are to not extort money by threats or false accusations. That was common in that, those days. If a soldier came up to you and said, hey, I want to come over to your house and eat dinner tonight and stay in your place for a couple weeks, They could do that. They could bully you. They could push you around. They could even get money from you. In fact, they would reinforce what the tax collectors were asking. They'd throw you in jail for it. So that's what he's saying. Don't do that. He's saying, hey, if you're walking in vital union and communion with the God of the galaxies, your bullying will be transformed into gentleness, your greed into contentment. 
So here's my question for you. If you truly have a relationship with Christ and you're walking with him, are you becoming more generous, honest, gentle, and a contented person? If not, if not, if that's not the fruit, then you gotta get back to the root because you're trusting in something other than, than Christ. You need to come back and put your trust in him. Are you becoming less and less of a stressed out, angry and depressed person and a more and more loving, joyful and peaceful person? It's a good question. I wanna become a more loving, joyful, peaceful person. So here's the next point on your notes. So we trust him first, that's the root, so we trust him first. We gotta get the order right, otherwise we become religious. So we trust him first, that's the root, and obey him second. That's the fruit, not the other way around. So we don't obey him to be saved because we'd be earning our salvation and then we're just using him. That's not actually, we're not really loving him in and of himself. We're we're using him to, to be saved. So we don't obey him to be saved. We are saved, therefore we obey him. You must trust in what he has done, not in what you do. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 makes that very clear. For by grace are you saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are his workmanship. And, and so it's his work in our lives. It's in our, in his work for us and then in us. And so the more you live in the reality of the fact that because of Christ, you are not just accepted, but celebrated by a perfect father, the more it changes everything about your life. So you, that's the first thing you've got to come into the realization of. So, you, so when you repent, you're turning from sin and you're beginning to look to Christ and you begin to realize, oh my goodness, what I have in him. Of course I'm going to turn from sin because of all that I have in him. So that's, that's how that works. Now, we're going to push that a little bit harder here. Next point in your notes. Whenever you say, I'll obey you if, so anytime you say that, I'll obey you if, you can fill in the blank, You're not obeying God, but using him and trying to make a deal with him. The if is your real God that you are serving. Now, I see people defect from the faith. I've been doing this for many years, and I've seen a lot of people defect from the faith. One is that they defect from the faith because they are deceived by the pleasures of life, thinking that they're going to actually find greater pleasure out there in creation as opposed to finding it in the creator. But other, another way that they're, uh, they're, they defect from the faith is that they become disillusioned by the pressures of life, doubting God's goodness in the midst of the pain and the suffering. There's a lot of pain and suffering, and I've seen uh, Christians go through that. And so they become disillusioned in that. I love the story of uh, Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of the martyred missionary Jim Elliot, wrote in her novel, No Graven Image, about a woman who gives her life to God and everything falls apart. She actually says that it was, a, it was really a true story about what she had experienced. And she said that when she... Uh, put the book out there, people read the book and wrote her letters and said, I don't believe in a God who would let that sort of thing happen to somebody who really lived for him. Because she personally went through some really, really traumatic times in her life. And what, what were they saying? 
when they responded to her book. They didn't like her book. And she was just being honest in her book about what she went through. And what they were saying is that I'll believe and obey God if, if he does these certain things. They are not letting God be God. He's adapting to you. You're not adapting to him. Elizabeth Elliott at the end of her book says something unbelievably profound. See if you can track with this. See if you can understand what she's saying here. At the end of her book, this is what she says. God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. Now, she said that in the midst of traumatic times. See, she was originally looking to God to be her assistant and not for her to be his assistant. She wanted a God who would support her plans and not for her to support his plans. See, that is a God of your own creation, though. She, she came to terms with that. That is a God of your own creation, a counterfeit God. In that way, God is, is our accomplice, and if he doesn't do what we want or think he should do, we simply fire or unfriend him as we would with any personal assistant. I mean, don't... don't I see, that, I see that all the time, though. I see people say, well, I can't believe after all I've done for God, I, I read my Bible, I prayed, I went to church, and this is how he treats me? This is what I get? It's like, wait, 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 wait. You, you obviously missed the big E on the eye chart, what he has done for you, regardless of how your life goes, goes down from this point on. What, what matters most is, see, you're not loving God for in and of himself. You're loving him as a means to an end. You don't really, really have a, a healthy relationship with God. And if things don't go your way, you're out of here. That, that's, not, that's not repentance and belief. Elizabeth Elliot realized that the demise of her plans had shattered her false God, and now she was free for the first time to worship the true God. Now listen to what she says. She quoted, this was another quote from her later on. This is what she said. God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. I surrender to him. My life is his. Now, that's, that's the repent, repent, turn from sin, and now believe in the Savior, turn towards the Savior. This is the next part of this. And so, repent, root, changing what you trust in, fruit, changing your behavior. But here's the belief. The belief is I'm more, more loved than I ever dared to dream. This is the confidence. So, there's two words for that, enjoy, expect. So, two words for repent, root, fruit, two words for believe, Enjoy, expect. Here's the first thing. Enjoy his goodness. Verse 15. People are wondering if John the Baptist is Christ. John the Baptist responds, verse 16. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I mean, I think that's almost become so common to us to hear that. I don't think we really understand what he's saying. Let me, I'll explain it in just a moment. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So that, that is a remarkable statement. A slave by Jewish law was not required to deal with someone's smelly, gross feet. 
Because in those days, you'd walk the dirty streets. They were all crusted with dirt and mud and, and animal feces and whatever. And uh, it was considered very demeaning to do such service. And what John is saying is that I'm not even worthy to aspire to that level of service for Jesus. Now just let that land on you just for a minute. Do you have that high of a view of Jesus? I wish more American Christians, and especially American pastors, had that view. I think we're really missing that view. We live in a day when uh, there's rock star pastors, celebrity pastors. That doesn't make any sense. When you begin to understand who Jesus is, Listen, if you, if you come here and you keep your eyes focused on me, I am going to disappoint you. Just ask my wife. I will. But it ain't about me. It ain't about anybody up on the stage. It ain't about our music. It's about, not about my teaching. It's not about anything. If you miss Jesus, listen to me. If you miss Jesus... And all that we do, you've missed everything. I don't, I don't think, I think it's impossible to exaggerate his goodness and greatness. He's saying, I don't even aspire to that level. Do you have any idea who I'm talking about? He's beyond your wildest dreams, and he wants to baptize you with his Holy Spirit. He wants to give you a life that is that is more exhilarating, more exciting, more energizing than you have ever experienced. That's what he's saying. And it's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. It's it's in him. Don't miss the big E on the eye chart. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. It's knowing him. It's, It's a relationship. It's a relationship with him. It's knowing him. It's walking with him. It's enjoying him. It's having him at the center of our lives. And, and so here's the next point in your notes. Jesus becomes more beautiful to your imagination and more attractive to your heart than anything else. And I gave you a bunch of verses there to kind of help you with that. Um, he says, in, remember John 4.14 with the woman at the well? He says, you drink of this well, drink of this water, you're going to be thirsty again. If you're trying to find your deepest satisfaction in something in creation, it's not going to happen, but you can find it in me is what he's saying. But drink of the water that I will give you and out of your innermost being... Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Not only will it bring bring, uh, satisfaction to you, but you'll be one of those that will walk around and you're going to bring satisfaction to others because you're going to point to him. That's that's what he's saying. In John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever whoever believes in me will will never go hungry. Uh, John 7, 37 through 38 also talks about this rivers of living water being satisfied in the deepest part of our souls. So here's the deal. Here's what you need to understand is that belief, belief in Jesus is more than, it's more than agreement with facts in the head about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. It's more than agreement with facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites. You want him more than anything. He satisfies you. You've never been more loved. You're thinking, oh my goodness, I've never had more hope in my my life since I put my trust in him. I've never been more loved. 
I've never experienced greater satisfaction. Oh my goodness, I, I just love, I love spending time with him. I love reading his word. I love worshiping him. I saw many of you this morning while we were doing that worship set. Man, that was a great worship set. I was just like, wow. Thank you, Lord, for your presence here. There was a sense, some of you had that, that sense on your heart. It's like, oh my goodness, he is, he is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So enjoy his goodness, but expect his greatness. Did you notice what he says in verse eight? He says, God can raise up children from these stones. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the greatness of God. Are you kidding me? He can, he can turn stones into Christians? Yeah, that's what he's saying. Verses 16 through 17, he will gather you to himself and baptize you with his Holy Spirit. And then, of course, he calls that, this is good news, the good news of the gospel. Here's what happens is that you begin to realize more than ever that no sin or suffering is a match for his redeeming and restoring grace. No sin or suffering. So let me ask you this. What are you going through? What are you struggling with? What sin do you struggle with? What are you suffering currently? I know many of you are really going through a hard time. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's not a match for his grace. It's not a match for his grace. He's for you. He's not against you. He can give you exactly what you need. You can trust in him. You can look to him. And in fact, I was really reflecting on this. I love, I gave you some verses there. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, Romans 1, 2 Peter 1, 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us by his glory and goodness. But I was thinking about this whole idea. So when you put your faith in Jesus, something, something quite miraculous happens. He puts his Holy Spirit within you. The third person of the triune God comes to live within you. And, and it tells us, what's fascinating about this, it tells us in Ephesians 1.14 that the Holy Spirit is the down payment. The down payment? That means more is coming. Does, does that make sense? So when, anytime he says down payment, he's just saying, hey, here's, here's the first installment. You got more coming. More coming of What? More coming of his presence. Not so much that you get more of God, but he begins to get a hold of your life unlike you've ever experienced before. And I think he's not just talking about heaven when we'll be in the very presence of God, which will be quite spectacular. But I think that he's talking about that there will be experience of his presence that will go beyond just that initial encounter with him as you begin and become more and more filled with his Holy Spirit. That's, what, that's the Spirit-filled life. And he wants our lives not to be a reservoir of the Holy Spirit, but a, a river flowing through me to impact the world around me. That's what he's talking about in those verses in John 4, 14, 6, 35, 7, 37 through 38, rivers of living water. Matthew 3, 13 through 16, it says, let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He wants you to live your life in such a way that you have such confidence in the, in the grace of God that no sin or suffering is a match of his redeeming, restoring grace. And you not only are experiencing it in your own life, but you're looking, looking for it in this world to bring it to the people that are struggling. Let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That they'll look at your life and they'll, they'll say, it must be God because you're not that good, okay? <laughs> it's evident that God's working in your life. Matthew 6, 10 
taught us to pray, part of that prayer is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I taught you this a few, uh, I think it was a few months ago, that when you walk into the room, you don't curse the darkness, you turn on the light. And when you turn on the light, it dispels the darkness. That's how God wants us to live. We're almost, when we pray, we're saying, God, what's up there? May it come down here. In essence, through our lives, not only is God wanting through his presence, power, his promises, to crowd out the efforts of hell working in our lives, but that we would be used to crowd out the efforts of hell in other people's lives. That we would live our lives in such a way. I mean, the world is full of unbelief, despair, and animosity. Heaven is full of faith, hope, and love. We will always reflect with our lives the nature of the world we are most shaped by and aware of. If we live overwhelmed by the difficulties of this world, we will project that. If we live with our hearts filled with the reality of God's presence and promises, we will project that. And we'll bring it into the circumstances of our life and have an impact in all the people's lives that God brings into our lives. So repent and believe, turn from sin, and turn to the Savior. Jesus came, here's the last two points. Jesus came the first time to bear our judgment. He's coming the second time to bring judgment. If you reject him when you die or when he comes the second time, you will face his judgment. That's what he's talking about in verses 16 through 17. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fires. So turn to him. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. The absolute best part of being a Christian is discovering and enjoying the presence and friendship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. If you're here this morning, you've never done that, this would be a good time to to put your faith in Jesus. Repent and believe. So, Father God, in repentance, we want our lives rooted in trusting your Son as our Lord and Savior so that the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, we pray that the fruit of the Holy Spirit would be more evident in our lives as we believe in you by enjoying your goodness and expecting your greatness As we do those two things, enjoying your goodness, expecting your greatness, may our hearts be so filled with your presence and promises that everyone around us would be impacted. What we now ask in this moment, may we maintain the rest of our lives until we come face to face with you in heaven. We pray these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' holy and beautiful name, and everyone said, Amen. amen. Love you guys.